So you know it's Palm Sunday, right? And Palm Sunday is the day when everybody finally got it right, and everything gave glory to Jesus Christ, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And uh, I want to read the account, uh, not actually from Matthew, but from Luke chapter 19. We're going to read verses 28 to 44. So Luke chapter 19, verses 28 to 44. This is the word of the Lord, and it is eternally true. After he, speaking of Jesus, said these things, he was going on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he approached Bethage called, and Bethany near the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village ahead of you. There as you enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one yet has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? They said, the Lord has need of it. They brought it to Jesus and they threw their coats on the colt and put Jesus on it. As he was going, they were spreading their coats on the road. As soon as he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, The whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen, shouting, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But Jesus answered, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. When he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace. But now they have been hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side. And they will level you to the ground and your children within you. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out those who were selling and saying to them, It is written, and my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a robber's den. And he was teaching daily in the temple, but the chief priests and the scribes and the leading men among the people were trying to destroy him, and they could not find anything that they might do, for all the people were hanging on to every word he said. This is the word of the Lord. And so if we think about Palm Sunday and the triumphal entry, we realize that the people got it right for once. Um... There were many people who worshipped Jesus in a quieter way. Uh, There were women who followed him and supported him and the disciples. Um, There were people who ate with him when he ate, who hung on every word, it says here. But when he came into Jerusalem, it had been spectacular what he had done in healing Lazarus, raising him from the dead. And they had seen so many miracles that it just seemed like a time to pull out all the stops. And what that means, pulling out the stops, is 
that you sit on an organ bench and you have the, the uh, console in front of you and on each side they have handles. And you just keep pulling the handles out and out and it adds and adds and adds more pipes and more pipes and more pipes until all the stops are pulled out. And the organ shakes your body. And if you complain about the sound of the band here, you've never been with an organ when an organ has all the stops pulled out. And let me tell you, low register, not just high register, like those guys that were singing falsetto on that side. (laughs) All right. All the stops were pulled out. All the stops were pulled out coming into Jerusalem that day. And the children were praising Jesus, the little ones. And they weren't thinking about themselves. Little Bree's sitting there, and she sees her daddy get up to make announcements. She goes, Daddy! And that's the kind of thoughtless, completely unaware praise that all the little kids were giving. And the adults were, in their own way, self-forgetful. So that they took off their coats and their cloaks and they put them on top of the donkey and then they mounted Jesus on the donkey. It's clear that they have agency in putting Jesus there. And then they ripped branches. Uh, Ben Burlingham was here at the first service and he was down on Kirkwood the night that we won, went into the final back in, who knows, 1990, I don't know, 2001, whenever it was, it doesn't matter. And that night down on Kirkwood, all the people celebrating getting to the final uh, under Mike Davis were pulling branches off the trees and waving them. So there's lots of worship in the world today, but it's not worship of Jesus Christ. All right? And so the adults were self-forgetful. The donkey was self-forgetful. He just did what he was made to do, which was to carry a burden to be a beast of burden. So the donkey wasn't thinking about his self-image. The children weren't thinking about their self-image. The adults weren't thinking about their self-image. Jesus was thinking about his nature, who he was, because Jesus commanded that he be worshipped that day. This wasn't something that happened to him as a passive recipient. Jesus that day did not say, don't tell anybody. That day he said, tell everybody. And what I really love about Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry, is that the Pharisees praised Jesus. And you say, well, no, 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 no. It says that they didn't praise Jesus. And I said, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It says they praised Jesus. You say, no, no, no. I say, yeah, 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 yeah. And you say, well, they complained and they sought to destroy him. And then I tell you what, in Psalms, what does it say? It says, the wrath of man praises him. And so what? Well, the Pharisees gave glory to Jesus Christ by showing that wicked men hate him. This is the thing that nobody can understand about heaven and hell. Through all eternity, those who are in hell will give glory to God. It's so scandalous to us. To think that the wrath of man, the wickedness of man, praises God. But it does. Because it's such a beautiful demonstration of God's holiness that wicked men hate it. And so the wrath of man praised him. The Pharisees had every bit as legitimate a place that day praising Jesus as the little children did. 
And as the adults did, and as the donkey did, everybody that day was unified. Everybody said the same thing was true, which is Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. And so those who are filled with themselves, filled with the cultivation of their own worship, their own pride, praised him by opposing the glory of God. And those who were humble praised him by praising the glory of God and worshiping. And so we had the triumphal entry. And it's instructive for us to think carefully about these two groups and to think about the one group as having at its heart self-forgetfulness. So if you were to ask them that day what was going on, they'd say, well, what are you, an idiot? Don't you see what's going on? We're praising Jesus. And you'd say, yeah, but how do you feel about it? you go, what are you, an idiot? What do you mean, how do I feel about it? Look at me, I'm waving the branches, I'm going berserk. Yeah, but what message are you communicating? Would you shut up? I have work to do. And that's generally the way people are when they're in ecstasy. When people are in ecstasy, don't ask them to examine it. Because why? Well, because ecstasies, they're standing outside of themselves. Finally, what we've been created to do happens. We forget about ourselves and we're completely caught up in God. And, I mean, do you feel that? This is ecstasy. You feel it. Do you feel it? To forget yourself and to be completely caught up with God is ecstasy. It's not a drug. It's a condition of completely forgetting yourself and completely being caught in the glory of God. Okay? You got that in your brain. Some of us, and I say us, have been caught up to the third and fourth and fifth and sixth heaven. Some of you haven't. If God does that, where he brings you into worship that you forget yourself, you'll never forget it, and your life from that point on will be, uh, you know, uh, Shakespeare says, uh, uh, there is a tide in the affairs of God, (laughs) which taken it the ecstasy, and then it says that all of life for those who, who wait for the tide going out is, is shallow. So, you know, the tide comes in, everything's flooded. The tide goes out, and you can't get a ship out of harbor, right? You, have any of you read Horatio Hornblower or Patrick O'Brien? You know, everything revolves around the tide. There's a tide in the affairs of man where when God brings you into a place where you're able to forget yourself and worship him... All of life from that point on is shallows. And the tide is out, and you mourn for the time when the tide was in and everything was flooded with the glory of God. Some of you have had that happen to you. And it was the most joyful time that you've ever had in your life. Why? Because ecstasies. You stand outside of yourself finally, and you're completely oblivious to your own dignity. It's such a precious gift for God to take away our dignity. And boy, we fight against it. And so, do you have a picture of this? 
The donkey had no dignity except to have Jesus' bottom on its back. And the children had no dignity except to scream and wave. The adults had no dignity. All right, you got that? They all were in ecstasy standing up. You have that, right? Now, come over here with me. And here, giving glory to him, are the scribes and Pharisees. And they're giving him glory because they hate it. They are completely inside of themselves, completely interior, completely narcissistic, completely postmodern. They didn't feel good about it. The narrative of their life did not include forgetting about themselves. To them, this was absolutely hateful. It was, it was blasphemy. That's what they consistently said every single time Jesus was referred to or referred to himself in a way that made it clear he was a Messiah. They just consistently said, you're blaspheming. So from their perspective, these people over here, number one, were blaspheming because they were attributing to a man something that should only be attributed to God. Now, were they right? No, they were wrong because Jesus was God. But of course, they couldn't see that. Why? Well, it was wrong because Jesus was directing attention away from the conservative religious leaders. All right? They were the ones that were called, their entire purpose in life was to what? Their entire purpose in life was to lead the people of God in worship. And so what was important was them. <laughs> you know? Because they have been ordained, hands laid on them, set aside for the purpose of leading the people in worship. And here's Jesus, you know, he didn't come to them and ask them to help. And we know that's not of God because the pastors and, and conservative pastors, not the liberals, you know, we are the perfect keepers of the cult of God. And so you think about a, a husband who is in a marriage and he's been taught that he's the head of the home and he takes the headship that God has given him and he turns it into a cult of him. And that's what they'd done. They'd taken the leadership that God had given them to bring glory to him and to his son. And it had turned into a cult of them. And so Jesus was blaspheming, but Jesus was also bypassing the proper authority. And so what happened was, over here we had men completely, completely, completely filled with themselves. Completely and utterly filled with themselves. The only thing they could think about was themselves. And so they were all Eeyores. Because nobody knows it's my birthday. Nobody knows I'm the pastor and everything should go through me. Have you ever lived with somebody that can't ever think about anybody but themselves? Have you? It's utterly repulsive. And you know, the thing about people that can't ever forget themselves is that they never laugh at a joke because they're so busy wondering whether the joke is on them. <laughs> they have no sense of humor. 
You know, if you tell them they're fat, they're offended instead of saying, by God, you're right. <laughs> I, was, I was at a soccer game yesterday and it was freezing cold and there was a skinny man next to me. And I thought, this is my moment. <laughs> so he was bragging to me about how he'd been thoughtful ahead of time and gotten dressed properly for the occasion. And I said, yeah, but I'm fat. <laughs> and I said, it's rare I get to brag about that. But now's such a moment. <laughs> we were having fun. And so think of how completely sad and oppressed and unhappy and self-centered and morbid and maudlin and narcissistic and postmodern and utterly revolting and disgusting and as I've gotten older and I've watched people, a thought that frequently comes to my mind is, I pity your wife. Because you see men and the way they act, and you think, what must it have been like to be married to that man for 50 years? And then I pity the man, because what must it have been like to live in his skin for 50 years? And that's the Pharisees. And so you have a beautiful contrast. And listen, people, if you want to just have the positives of the triumphal entry, you're not reading Scripture because there's negatives all through, and the positives never show up except against the background of the negatives. And so when you've got all these little kids and the Pharisees are furious, Jesus says, hey, listen, if you shut them up, the stones are going to cry out. And it's not the rolling stones. All right? It's the rocks. The trees, the rocks, inanimate objects will become animate if the, if the children are suppressed. And then he says what? Well, did you see it? He goes immediately from receiving the worship to saying this. He says, he saw the city and he wept over it. So think about this. Jesus receives the worship. It's glorious, and immediately he starts crying. Why does he cry? Because he's so utterly aware of the people who are giving him praise by being angry and wrathful. And it's so tragic. Do you know what I think? Every single time I'm in this church, every single time I'm in this church prior to preaching, what I think as I sit here is it's so utterly tragic that there are so few people here. Now, if you want to be a cynic, you'll think that that's because I think that more people should listen to me preach. But that's not why I think that. I think that because of the joy of being with the people of God, worshiping Jesus. And I just think, how could it be that there's so few people in Bloomington doing this? Where are your friends? <laughs> you know, that's what I always think. Where are my friends? You know, this is what we're made to do. This is the one time during the week when we know that there's no uh, discontinuity, no like off-pitch stuff between us and what we're made to do. Right? 
This is the time when we can give ourselves exuberantly to the work ahead of us and not be worried that our motives are wrong or that the words aren't right or that our body posture is wrong or anything. We don't have to worry about that. When it comes to worship, we just forget ourselves and we give ourselves to worship. And I think surely in Bloomington, in an evangelical country, at an evangelical time when the whole country is biblical Christians, President Obama and everybody else, right? Surely this place would be packed to the gills and we would lift the ceiling with our praise. Surely, surely. And so here the scribes and the Pharisees are and Jesus sees the worship, but then it tells us what? It tells us that immediately... What happens? He approached Jerusalem, he saw the city, and he wept over it, saying, If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace. But now it's hidden from you. Let me tell you, people, there are an awful lot of people that I mourn over who have missed the day, and now their life is gone. And that's the thing, I never was told in seminary, I never was told in seminary how many people, having loved the world, would forsake Jesus Christ. People who were baptized, people who were accepted as members of the church, people who sat at the Lord's table, people who tasted of the things of the Spirit, and now they're gone. I talked to somebody today in this church, I think there's a very good chance that in a few years they will be gone. And there will be no hope for them. And in the ministry, you see this over and over again. You see people who for a time tasted of the things of the Spirit. I'm quoting Hebrews. And then they're gone. They're gone. And Jesus says very clearly here, did you see it? It says, if you had known in this day, this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. And so that's what's so sad about seeing how few people here. Because what that means is that, that, that Bloomington is filled with people that God has blinded their eyes. They're completely blind. I'm very sad today that Bill Cook has died. Because Bill Cook was a blessing of God on this community. And if you think of what a man in his position could have done that would have been wicked, and you think of the many, many good deeds that the man did, you think, if nothing else, what a positive thing it is to be employed by Cook. You know, that there is a benevolent moral environment. That's what I hear from people that have worked there and people that knew the man. You think about his humility. There are many, many good traits about Bill Cook, but if you go to the Indiana Business Journal and you look at the comments right under the, the, the announcement of his death, there's immediately a comment by a woman who's over in uh, Wachimajiggy, Illinois, where he came from. I think that that's where she's from. And what she says is that he, they will welcome him into heaven. And the fact is, so far as I know, there was not even any, any indication of faith on his part. And so what we've done is we've taken being moral and not being Donald Trump, 
all right? And we've defined that as Christian faith. And that that is the basis on which you're welcome to heaven, that you give away money for the preservation of buildings and you have a moral work environment. And so he's in heaven because he lived a good life and stayed with the same woman. And what you need to do is to, is to feel grief that for Bill, it is appointed unto man once to die and after that the judgment. And there's, there comes an end. And Jesus shows the end very clearly here when he says what? What he says is, if you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they've been hidden from your eyes. And then he goes on and says, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side. And they will level you to the ground and your children within you. Don't ever believe that God is a sentimentalist as you are. Don't ever believe that. You and I and Bill Cook were made to worship God. And God is jealous. And God says that if we do not do what we were made to do, we will be consumed by his wrath. That's, that's the truth. And so here we could spend our time just looking at the glorious beauty of ecstasy and of worship. But immediately Jesus cries and says about this group over here, it's over. You're blinded. You're done. Why? Well, because over here people were worshiping Jesus Christ and that's what we're made to do. And over here people refuse to worship Jesus Christ, but they worship the creation rather than the creator who is forever praised. And so they're done, it's over, it's gone. And every single time you come into worship, you have a choice whether to give yourself to worship and call it a posture and an attitude of self-forgetfulness. 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 Self-forgetfulness, 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 just self-forgetfulness. Self-forgetfulness, self-forgetfulness, okay? And then you worship Jesus. And if it will help, (laughs) I was trying to illustrate this one time at a church that I used to serve. And I illustrated it by, in the middle of my sermon, I did this. I, I said, so, like, this is what you do. And what I was doing was I was illustrating what Hoosiers do for the IU basketball team. As all the cult prostitutes get in a circle around the flag as it climbs the pyramid. You've all seen it. 
right? And they get down on their knees, and they go like this. And they fall on their face. And then they come back up, and they fall on their face in front of the flag. And everybody looks at it and thinks, this is such a special thing, let's do it every game. Every single game, let's have cult prostitutes get up and fall on their faces in front of the flag. But I do it here, and you're all going, oh, please. I go, help me here. I don't understand. If it's a cult prostitute and she does it, you all love it. But if I do it, illustrating to you what happens at your basketball games, you're like, Tim, really? Does your mother know what you're doing? Listen, if it helps for you to forget yourself, your preacher should fall on his face. He should take off his shoes. What about David? King David, you remember what he did? He took his royal garments and he stripped them off. He wasn't naked, but he just was lacking the accoutrements of royalty. Wouldn't you just love to see an academic procession? where there was just one Christian man that had a Bic lighter. And as they walked, he took his hood. (laughs) And I want it to be one of those Swiss ones with all the flamboyant colors. Wouldn't you just love to see a PhD candidate who had in... 74-point font. I give glory to Jesus Christ for my completion of this thesis. I never thought I'd get it done. Wouldn't you love to go into an office and see right above the door as you walk into the office, this building is dedicated to Jesus Christ. Wouldn't you love to see Christians living in a way that's self-forgetful and that Christians are constantly humiliating themselves so that Jesus will receive the glory? Wouldn't you love that? And shouldn't there, shouldn't there be a safe place for that to happen? And shouldn't the church be that Sunday morning? <laughs> it's like, yes. God bless you. Listen, in heaven, do you know where I'm going to preach? I'm going to preach in a black church, and I hope I never have to see your white faces again. (laughs) It is so oppressive. We are so filled with ourselves in America, whites, and especially reformed people. It's utterly disgusting. You want to know how disgusting it is? It's so disgusting that when Jody tells you to lift your hands, you refuse to do it. And you say, Jody never tells us to raise our hands. I say, see, you've you've done your job well. You're the one that keeps him from telling you to raise your hands. You won't do it. You refuse to do it. You know that when Jody raises his hands, you ever watched me? You know what I do every single time Jody raises his hands? And by the way, those of you from another reformed part of this country, 
Calvin actually talks about body posture in worship and makes it clear that that's to be a part of our worship. I just wanted to make sure that you knew I was not going off the reservation. Okay? All right. Okay. All right. Okay. I just had to, you know, some people from Doug Wilson's churches here this morning, and I want to make sure that Doug and I are tight. (laughs) Do you know why... What I do every single time Jody tells us to raise our hands, every time he raises his hands, you know what I do? Have you ever watched me? Every single time Jody tells us to raise our hands, I lift my hands. Do you know why I do it? The reason I do it is because I don't want to do it. And I think in worship, every single time you find yourself not wanting to do something, that's the very thing you should do. And you go, well, I find myself wanting to give prophetic utterance. And I say, well, you better go check with the elders first. Okay? But did you notice I didn't say, well, you can't do that here. Why? Well, because Scripture says, forbid not the speaking in tongues. Did you know that's in the Bible? It's actually in the Bible. So if you speak in tongues, there has to be interpretation. And if there isn't, you're not speaking in tongues. It doesn't matter how you feel. So Jody lifts his hands, and why do I lift my hands? I lift my hands because why? Because I don't want to. And you say, well, what's the principle? And I say the principle is self-abnegation. You say, what does that mean? When Jody lifts his hands and I don't want to, I lift my hands. That's what it means. (laughs) What it means is humiliation. It means doing the thing that will make me feel like an idiot. And lifting my hands always makes me feel like an idiot. I think, is the sweat showing? I think, I'm old now and it's hard keeping those hands up there for four verses. Yeah, 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 Bob. (laughs) Bob just spoke. And being interpreted. (laughs) Bob's always speaking in tongues. (laughs) Listen, guys, you will never, ever come to Christ, ever unless you enter through repentance. And the first thing you have to do is you have to repent of your pride. You can't go to God and tell him what he must do. You can't do it. I had an elder's wife tell me, she heard that we're going to begin to go forward for the Lord's Supper and receive it up front from the elders in person. And I had her tell me that she doesn't want to do it. And I was so thankful to have somebody say, I don't want to do it. Because you know what she said? I don't want to do it because I'm proud. What a wonderful, wonderful testimony of the glory of Jesus Christ. When somebody comes to you and says, I don't want to do what you're going to tell me to do because I'm proud. I think that's more worship than when she comes forward when we do it. Because she's saying, I don't have any principles. She she didn't actually say that, but she's showing the main reason is her pride. And so if the elders, actually, here's the warning. 
if you come Thursday, you're not going to be able to sit in the pew and pass the plate and be completely disconnected from everybody. You're going to have to come forward, look in the eyes of someone, and they are going to give you the sacrament. All right? And you know why we're doing this? The main reason is we want to restore something of fellowship to the meal, which is supposed to be the unity of the body of Christ. We still can't be around a table the way I'd really like to do it, have a potluck and have that be the Lord's Supper. And there are reasons for that, but we can sure do something better than sitting with our eyes closed, passing from person to person, which requires nothing in terms of fellowship. Nothing. And you say, well, yes, but it's such a meditative time. And I say, you know, meditative times are those times when you don't ever have to worry about humility. You can just have a prayer with Jesus all by yourself with your eyes closed. Nobody knows what you're saying. Your wife doesn't know whether you're apologizing for how you treated her on the way to church. And you're what, you, Nobody knows anything about what's going on in your brain, but we want you to come forward. And we want you... Come here. We want you to come... And we want you to hold out and we want to look in your eyes and say, the body and blood of Jesus Christ given for you for the forgiveness of your sins. Now look at this. Do you feel the intimacy? Can he be angry at me and look in my eyes while I'm giving him the sacrament? Absolutely not. Absolutely. And we didn't do that for show. We do that every time we see each other unless I'm uptight about something and I act like I don't see him. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. I did it in the office today, don't you remember? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, which are you? You over here? You over here. Who are you? You maintaining your feminine dignity and you refuse to be a part of a church where they teach you to submit to your husband? (laughs) Okay, fine. You can do that. You can do it. You refuse to be under elders? Fine, you can do that. There is freedom of will. Make no mistake about it. (laughs) You will not, and you have your freedom. You will not, and you have your freedom. You don't want to lift your hands? Fine. You don't want to kneel? Fine. You don't want to worship a God who says homosexuality is a sin and he will not tolerate it? Fine. You can be over here. You want to commit fornication and hide it and refuse to confess your sin to the elders? Fine. You can have your pride. You want to be greedy and love money? Fine. Fine. You're over here. And so which side? Where are you? Where are you? Michael and David. And David's over here. You remember what David's doing? You remember what happened? Here's the story. The Ark of the Covenant wasn't in the royal city where it needed to be. And you know what the Ark of the Covenant was? It was the place of God's presence in the Old Testament. And it wasn't in Jerusalem. So David, being a godly man, had inclinations. And the inclination was to bring the place of God's presence into the city of God, the city of the kings. Jerusalem. And so David was a good evangelical. He had inclinations. He prayed about it. It was clear to him what he wanted was right. 
He had a feeling. And so he went down to get the Ark of the Covenant and to bring it up to Jerusalem and to put it where it should be, at the center of the people God, in the place of worship, with respect and dignity. And so they went down to get the Ark, but, but God, being a very nitpicky sort of person, watched carefully. And David's inclinations were completely honorable and proper. And David was a man after God's own heart. And surely God would know that what David intended was to honor him. And surely it's a good thing to bring the Ark of the Covenant up to Jerusalem. And surely everything about it should be looked at according to the deep motivation. He was a great evangelical. And so he went down to get the ark, but instead of carrying it the way God told them to command it, the way God commanded them to carry it, they went ahead and put it on a cart, right? And as they were bringing it up to Jerusalem, it must have hit a rock or something. And it started to fall off the cart, you remember this, and the men reached out to stabilize it, which of course is perfectly proper. You don't want the Ark of the Covenant falling on the ground. Who could be upset at them for touching it? And they touched the Ark, and God struck them dead like that. And David was furious, because all of his inclinations were perfectly proper. He'd had his personal devotions that day, and he'd read from the English Standard Version. And he went to a Bible-believing church. He was an elder. And his wife didn't work. Homeschooled. And just this little nitpicky thing, you know, which is God had commanded them not to carry the ark except in this way they, com- they carried it. And this way it started to fall. Men reached out to touch it, to stabilize it, to keep it from falling. And they were struck dead like that. Dead, gone, gone. And David was furious. How could God do that? Look at what his inclinations, his motivations. Look at why he was doing. And he's a man after, and God struck him dead. And so it took a period of time, and the house of Obed-Edom, remember this? The house of Obed-Edom was blessed because the ark, which proves the principle that, uh, that it's an ill wind that blows nobody some good. So Obed-Edom's his house, they probably got rich. They probably had more children. You know, all kinds of good things happened to Obed-Edom. And David looked at this and David said, you know, I'm going to try again. But this time, what did David do? This time, David carried it the way it was supposed to be carried. Ding dong. Little things, right? So he's bringing the ark up. And as it comes, he's stopping to sacrifice. They're shouting and they're yelling And they're dancing, and then they stop and sacrifice because the blood of the animals points to Jesus. And then they sacrifice, they have wonderful, they they sing, they yell, and then they stop in the blood of Jesus. And then they're, and they're coming in, and David's so filled with it that he says, forget the stupid, forget the stupid kingship. I'm going to take off my clothes. And so he takes off his coat, and he takes off his royal garments, and he's dancing with all his might before the Lord. And then what happens? 
his wife. <laughs> she is so filled with herself. And when he takes off his dignity, it really is her taking off her dignity. And she didn't make any decision to be one with him in that. And it was, it was just disgusting to her that David would make such an ass of himself in front of the people of Israel. He was a king. He should behave in a kingly way. And she was his wife, and she did not approve. Men, hey, ever, any of you ever been there? Huh? Don't admit it, Mark. <laughs> Every single one of us has been there. I'm not singling you out. I just saw your face at that moment. And so here's what happened. I want to read the end of the story because it's so instructive. It happened as the Ark of the Lord, 2 Samuel 6, came into the city of David that Michael, the daughter of Saul, and you know that's not good. When it's mentioned whose daughter she is, <laughs> the daughter of Saul looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord. It's entirely proper when IU wins the basketball game. And it's entirely improper when it's done in the worship of God. And she, what? She despised him in her heart. And so they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent which David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And what are offerings? They're blood. Okay? Keep it in your mind because they point to Jesus. When David had finished offering the burnt offering and the peace offering, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. Okay? Further, he distributed to all the people, to all the multitude of Israel, both to men and women, a cake of bread and one of dates and one of raisins to each one. And then all the people departed each to his house. But when David returned to bless his household, Michael, the daughter of Saul, (laughs) okay, came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel distinguished himself today! He uncovered himself today in the eyes of his servants' maids as one of the foolish ones shamelessly uncovers himself. And so David said to Michael, it was before the Lord. Isn't that beautiful? David forgot himself because it was before the Lord. She's saying to him, oh, you really distinguished yourself in front of the young women. And David's like, what? The young women. What? The young women! It was before the Lord. It was before the Lord. David's ecstasy stands outside of himself. Because he's only thinking of the glory of God. That's it, right? And he says, it was before the Lord who chose me above your father and all his house. Uh You feel that, men and women? You feel that? It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me ruler over the people of the Lord, over Israel. Therefore, I will celebrate before the Lord. Mm Mm-hmm. 
You ever had that dignity in front of your wife? You ever disciplined your wife like that? You know your wife has disciplined you like that. (laughs) I don't have any question that every single one of you as men have had your wife discipline you like that. But I do have a question about many of you, whether you've ever disciplined your wife like that. It took David setting his fist down. He set his fist down. I will not have you despising my God. And so all of a sudden, David and Jesus were one. Do you understand this? And all of a sudden, for David to say, me and the Lord was one and the same. You realize that. He went directly from saying, before the Lord and me. There was such close unanimity or union or whatever it is between the two that there was no discontinuity between him and the Lord. His identity, his worship was God. And so he shut his wife up. Now listen to it. Therefore, I will celebrate before the Lord. I will be more lightly esteemed than this. Remember how I said what she was really concerned about was her own esteem, her own reputation, her own honor. It was completely bound up to her husband. He was the king. He should never have put off the kingly garments, and he should never have danced in front of people. It was unseemly. And she didn't mind him. It was her. And he says, hey, 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 you don't want me to be humble? You don't want me to be lightly esteemed? Fine, fine, fine. I'll be more lightly esteemed than that. Why? Because I will do anything I can to glorify God. You think about David and you think about Psalm 51. Can you tell me a point in his life when he glorified God more than when he wrote Psalm 51? You know what Psalm 51 is? It's his confession of sin after he commits adultery and murders a man to cover it up. Against thee, thee only, have I sinned and committed this evil. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of your salvation, and then, then, I will teach, I will lead transgressors to you. David was willing to be lightly, even more lightly esteemed for the sake of the glory of God. And so he took off his clothes, and so he danced with all his might. And so he confessed his sin publicly. And then over here is Michael. And he says this, Therefore, I will celebrate before the Lord. I will be more lightly esteemed than this and will be humble in my own eyes. But with the maids of whom you have spoken, with them I will be distinguished. In other words, woman, you don't know the maids of Israel. Here are the maids of Israel. And they think a man who takes off his kingly garments and dances with all his might is a distinguished man. I mean, I mean, honestly, think of McRoby and then think of David Canfield. Who's more distinguished, the president of IU or David Canfield? He's fat.
David says, you have no idea what you're saying about the maids of Israel. The maids of Israel love and worship God. And if I am even more humiliated, more humble, more uh, forgetful of my dignity, they will esteem me. You have no idea what you're talking about. You're so filled with yourself, you don't even know the maids. He knew the maids of Israel better than his own wife, who was a maid, knew them. And then we have this. Just incidental comment at the end. Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. She had a pride, didn't she? She had a principle. She expressed her mind to her husband. She had free will. And she had no child. And what does it say? It says she had no child because David didn't go into her anymore. Right? That's why. Is that why? She had no child because God closed her womb. Is that why? Doesn't say, does it? You know what I think? I think she had no child because she used contraceptives from that point on. <laughs> now listen, I'm playing with your head, okay? I'm, I'm kind of making a joke. But here's my point. My point is that we always come down on one side or the other when Scripture's ambiguous, all right? And we're so clear that David wouldn't have sex with her anymore because she didn't have a child until the day of her death, and there was a conflict there. Or we're sure that God closed her womb because many times in Scripture it says God closes a woman's womb. But you know, oftentimes when God closes a womb, you know how he does it? He does it by having a woman make a decision that she will not open her womb anymore. But it was God that closed her womb. She just thought it was her. And so here's my point. My point is, it doesn't matter. It's a curse, and it doesn't matter whether it came from David not having sex, from God closing her womb, or from her closing her own womb. It just makes no difference. From that point on, she was done. It was over. And none of us ever want to think that there's ever a moment in our lives when we're done. And none of us ever want to think that when a sermon like this is preached, that eternity doesn't hang in the balance. Why, that's Arminian manipulation. <laughs> you know, forget that statement of Scripture that, you know, now is the day of salvation. This is the time of repentance. You know, it was so unreasonable of God when they came back and they showed that there were giants in the land, but some of them were saying, we can take it. And the Israelites were like, why did you bring us here? And then all of a sudden, God made a decision. And, and, and so then they went out to take it. They, they just thought better in a day or so. And then they went out and God had said, no, it's 40 years in the wilderness for you now. And all of you will die. And, and they thought better of it. And there's never anything at stake in a particular hour. Never. You can always have a second, third, fourth, and fifth chance. And so they go out to fight, finally. They get it, they, they get it in their heads that maybe that God was right. And they go out, and what happens? They're massacred. Why? Because God took their free will and eternity was determined by it. 
And so you've got the triumphal entry, and you have <laughs> the rocks were trying to be animate. You've got the babies. You've got the branches of trees. In, you have the donkey. You have the disciples. You have men and women. You have adults. You have children. You have everything in creation, everything giving glory to Jesus. And then over here, you've got the conservative religious leaders. And they're furious. And they both praise God. They both praise God. In hell, the wrath of man will praise God. And so you have a choice. You can have your precious self-image and your dignity, and every time Jody lifts his hands, you can say, I'll be hanged if I do that. I ask you to kneel. You won't kneel. Or you can say, you know, probably the best thing for me to grow into the image of Jesus Christ, probably the best thing is for me to humble myself. (laughs) And so whatever I think I don't want to do in worship, and whenever my wife rebukes me or my husband rebukes me, and every time I have a chance to submit myself to to my parents, Taylor. Now listen. This is just normal life. Taylor hasn't been bad. Every time you have an opportunity to humble yourself for the glory of God and make sure it's concrete, you don't want to have any sort of ethereal, hypothetical humility. (laughs) Because that kind of humility is never humility. (laughs) Almost always humility involves some sort of fleshly thing. You know, like changing a diaper. Every chance you get to humble yourself, grab it, because God resists the proud. And that day, on this side, were those who it was over, it was done, and their children would be destroyed. Children. I say children because that's the thing that's most heinous to us. We can't conceive of how God would deal with children that way. Trust me. When Jesus said it, and you heard him say it, it was true. Okay? And you say, well, how can that be? And I say, okay, you have your pride, you have your image, you have what you think is right, you stand over there, I'm over here where the Bible tells me. And I judge right by what the Bible says, right? Does this make sense? I humble myself under the word of God. Here's an idea. Okay? Now, one thing. I get so frustrated at this. Oh, I've got to tell you a story, and then I'll I'll tell you what I was going to say. So I'm preaching Palm Sunday, and I'm at this Presbyterian church that's on the National Register of Historic Places. It's my church. Beautiful New England, corner lot, deciduous trees, fall colors. People constantly stopped and took pictures of this church with their cameras when they went by on the state highway. All right? And I'm the preacher of a Presbyterian church. All right? And so I'm preparing to preach on Palm Sunday, and I'm thinking to myself, you know, it's so stupid that you would preach on people giving glory to God, but there would not be a chance for anybody to fulfill their vows in the church during the service. 
And I think, you know what I'm going to do tomorrow? I'm going to give people in the church a chance to glorify God individually in front of the people to fulfill their vows. And so I did it the next day. Preached. Then I said, now we're going to have an opportunity for you to give glory to God. And I actually said to them, don't give glory to yourself. We don't want to hear about you. Please, we don't want to hear about you. What we want to hear about is Jesus Christ. Give glory to him. And so a couple of people stood up and gave glory to God. There was no self-buildup, no manipulation, none of that, right? And then the next day, a letter came out from the people of the church to the presbytery. And the letter said, we yesterday had people giving testimonies in a service. And we are not Pentecostals. And we are not Baptists. The whole point of the letter was they were trying to get my presbytery to fire me because of what I'd done the day before. We are Presbyterians and we hope to stay that way. And the thing I got a kick out of is it was signed R-E-S-P-E-C-T-I-V-L-Y-Y-O-U-R-S and there was only one real signature. (laughs) They thought they were writing respectfully but they wrote respectively because they were Presbyterians. (laughs) So they wanted me gone because they hated people to forget themselves and to glorify God. The whole point of a preacher is to keep anybody from ever doing that in a service. A Presbyterian preacher. Now, I want one of you to stand up and glorify God because I heard about what went on in the women's thing yesterday and I think it's such a rip-off that you guys get to do that and we don't get to hear it. Mary Lee told me blow by blow what all you women said. And so it doesn't have to be a woman and it certainly doesn't have to be one of you that already did it at the women's retreat. But I want only one person to stand up and to give glory to God now, not yourself, to give glory to God. And if I had been sitting there, okay, Hester, if I had been sitting there, I would have already stood up. All right, come here. There's nobody I'd rather hear from than you. Nobody. This is a woman speaking in church, by the way. I'm not preaching, though. No. <laughs> she's not preaching, though, she says. Okay, you hold that and give glory to God. Um, Your hair is getting in the way. I get, oh, I'll just hold it. Well, it's a man thing. Women don't understand technology. Okay. Um, I give glory to God because he, he died for all of us. And we are all in a church that preaches the truth and when I have been in sin God has forgiven me and only through him have I been able to come back to the church and not be so humiliated by my sin that I'm too scared to come and only through him I am able to be a good mother and only through him I am able to wake up each day and live in this world and try not to be of this world only through him am I even standing here and 
God is good all the time, even when things are horrible, even when bad things happen in our life or to our children. God is good all the time. People aren't, but God is. So there you go. All right, now one man, and then I promise we'll, we'll, we'll stop. Oh, oh, oh well. <laughs> you guys missed it. Which, let which, me, let me do which it. end is up? There, there. I give glory to God because he has had mercy upon me, a sinner. I can't say any more than that. caught on your arm. Okay, one more. Okay, come on. And then you're next. Actually, let's have the lady before the man. Come on, kid. Yes, ladies first. You know how to put this thing on? It will be better. Okay. okay. He restores the years the locusts have eaten. Yes! And I glorify God because no matter how unfaithful I am in every way, whether it's at work, whether it's in my family, wherever, he is completely faithful. He, you know, restored work to me. He gave us a new child. And I just glorify him so much for every, everything that he does for us constantly. Thank you, Elliot. Adam. Don't worry, this is the last one. I give glory to God because in his word he gives me everything that I need. and He knows me so well. Yesterday I was reading Psalm 119 and it said, I will give testimonies to the Lord before kings and not be ashamed. And I realized he gave me that where it says I will not be ashamed because he knew that I would be ashamed. And he knew that I needed to see that a a man who loves God will not be ashamed. And I thought, oh, God, you know me so well. Thank you for your word. Does does anybody who's very full of themselves want to get up and give glory to God? Okay, good. I give glory to God because although I stand as a barrier between my family and God, and especially my daughter and God, uh, he continues to draw them near and draw my wife near and lead, lead my family to him. Does anybody who is not full of themselves want to give a testimony? Come on. Come on, guys. Come on up and give glory to God. This is good work.
this is, uh, most of you don't even know me. Um, I'm Anna Talcott's dad. And it's going to be easiest for you if I just do this. And then you just forget about it just a little bit. Okay. And uh, <laughs> this guy likes me. I don't know why. <clears throat> because God does. Anyway, there's probably nobody in this building right at the moment who has any more reason to give glory to God than David's mother, Debbie, my wife, Jill, and me. Um, sorry. I'm an emotional guy. Uh, as my son-in-law said in a, in a Facebook that probably most of you saw, as my son-in-law said, God did not spare his own son, but today he spared my, my daughter. And that's my granddaughter. And I glorify God. Let me just let me just say something about in the first service I told I told everybody about Little Hope. And I didn't do that here. But Little Hope was born and the statistics for her making it to her birth were small. The statistics of her surviving her birth were small. And if you look at her, she's just a normal Talcott. But there is coming out of the back of her head a blister. And so that'll have to be taken, but all indications are that we can hope that she will be a normal child as ugly as you are, Nicholas. And she'll live amongst us, and she will be the hope that the Lord does restore the years the locusts have eaten. And one thing, while we're on the subject of little hope, is when she comes here, Lord willing, she's going to come down here tomorrow, with her mother, and then you're going to see her next Sunday. When you see her, don't take her. Let her parents hold her. Don't, don't you hold her, okay? Don't ask to. Because they have to be careful of her head until she has this surgery, okay? Come on. Oh, you already have one. Go ahead. Hello. <laughs> I want to give glory to God for um, everything that he's done in uh, my life, just from um, blessing me with... Uh, wife, um, just saving me from my sin, um, just, um, just giving me um, this church, just all the things that God's done to be faithful, and uh, it's it's amazing. It's amazing. Amen. Okay, it's a woman's turn, but only come forward if you're filled with yourself. very filled with myself and I give glory to God because he doesn't give me what I want but he gives me what I need I want ease and comfort and he gives me work and difficulty and it's good I give glory to God because I have no idea what to say and I don't have to worry about that because Christ is my strength. 
and everything that I have. Okay, only time for one more. Okay, there are three of you. Come on. Come on. It's the woman first and then two men. Well, one of you is a man, the other is a man boy still. Oh, Although you're married. Is it on? Yes, it's on. It's on. It just doesn't work that way. Okay. Okay, go ahead. I give glory to God because I didn't want to come up here. Because I am so full of myself. And I give glory to him because he saved me from his wrath. I give glory to God, for I'm a man completely full of myself, too. And I think it was very interesting that I preached a sermon to the fold about love others as you love yourself. And I think it's very ironic that God gave me that passage, because I am the last one who should be teaching others how to do that, because I fail at it so bad. But I give glory to God, because he has freed us through the blood of Jesus Christ from our pride, from our sin. We are not doomed to it. We are freed from it. I give glory to God, because he has bought it on the cross, and we are free from ourselves. Um, I just want to give glory to God for showing us that it, he answered our prayers. When Mary and Reza's passport got stolen in South Africa the other day, miraculously he brought them back two days and restored the whole fear. But we were able to just endure and trust and ask the congregation to pray with us. And our friend John, um, Rob Ardner from Thailand, he's a missionary there, was just saying, Nick, just relax. You prayed. God will provide. And I give glory to God for that. Thank you. Should we let a Pentecostal speak? You know, the first thing Chris ever said to me when he came to this church was, I want you to know that I'm not Reformed, and I think Reformed theologians are some of the worst things that ever happened to the church. Isn't that what you said? Probably something like that. <laughs> I had seen PCUSA stuff, junk, and some other things too. But I just wanted to say, first let me take the accoutrements of a professor off. Yes. This is... And... I want to give glory to God for all of you and for helping those of you humble me. Uh, David Pryor just the other day, uh, he knows. And thank you for this church. I thank God for this church. It's about God giving people like you in my life and elders and pastors like you. And so thank you all. And I just give glory to God for his ministry and means of grace in getting rid of our pride. And I, I have a lot of long way to go, and I thank God that he's worked in that. Okay, would, would the women please go and get the children right now and bring them in and bring the workers in also. So make sure the workers are able to come in so we can all worship together at the end. And there's a time while the kids are being brought in for a couple more people 
only one more. I give glory to God because he's given me a job that humbles me. I used to despise children because I was not patient with them. And now I teach them and I love it. And I give glory to God for providing that for me and humbling me in my work. I praise God for all of you. You have helped me tremendously since um, I got to this church, and I praise God because he's there for me always. I, I, I'm a sinner. I'm a terrible guy. But only through the grace of God do I think that I will be in heaven someday. Thank you. Will he be in heaven? How will he be in heaven? Through the blood of Jesus Christ. There's only time for one more. Right on. It's the real men, by the way, who are coming forward. <laughs> I just give uh, praise to God because he's long-suffering, and that's something I'm definitely not. And... So he shows me uh, my sin by uh, being perfect in ways that I'm not. We have two men, but I don't see any women. I was scared I was going to cry, so I didn't want to come up. Um, I give glory to God that I see him working on my brother's life and it's been hard being the only Christian in a family for 14 years so praise God come here come here Wayne come here we should introduce you to everybody come on come on <laughs> this is David Abusara the <laughs> second tell him who you are Oh, my name is Wayne Foster. I moved here about two months ago. I got a job from Mike Bowles, who I have to say he's been, besides being in my brother's life, he's probably been the biggest blessing to me, to just example he gives me in the work, and he's been a big help. And I'm thankful for all the guys, for John, for Mike Lockett, all the guys I've been getting support from. So thank you. This is the next to last one. Can you wait, wait, wait? Okay, come on over here. Okay. There you go. All right. Um, I give glory to God that He continues to chip away at my pride by giving me very um, humble work to do. 
And by just little things, I, a couple of you I've shared this with, but just a couple of weeks ago while Lawrence was out of town, um, one of the ways I'm prideful is by my just um, organization, but he let me run out of gas. <laughs> so that was one way. So. Okay, this is the last one. Sure. <laughs> I want to give glory to God that he does not leave us in our sin um, and that he, his faithfulness, you know, we heard a lot of talk about his faithfulness this morning, but his faithfulness to us, to me specifically, includes conviction of sin, not just once and not just 10 times and not just 20 times, but continuing to be faithful to convict me of my sin and my pride until I repent. It's beautiful. <laughs>